From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. There is nothing wrong with your television set. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WGDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see individuals. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in. simultaneously. In the form of energy, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. Explodes into this enormous collage, and in this moment, we are perfect. We are whole. We are whole. And we are doomed. And we are doomed.
whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is your mind which creates it. Good morning, I'm Tony Epstein, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that presents and explores the work of some of the most brilliant, creative, and caring people who are helping to create the more beautiful world that we know in our heart is possible. My guest today is Sophia Maravel, founder of Ecologia Rising, which helps communities and organizations to envision and implement the purpose at the heart of their community or organization by helping each individual member to contribute to the collective vision and realization of their deepest and most heartfelt purpose. Maravel is a Goddard student. Are you still a student at Goddard? I just graduated this February. And you are the creator of Ecologia Rising? Yes, Ecologia Rising. Ecologia Rising. So tell me about Ecologia Rising and what that is, what that means, and how you came to, to create that. Yeah. Upon graduation from Goddard this winter, I applied for a Goddard Entrepreneur Sustainability Grant. And um, in my proposal, my business proposal for this grant, I formulated the idea of Ecologia Rising, which would be a visioning facilitation business that could help individuals and communities to basically unlock their imaginations to envision what they love, what they would love to inhabit in the future, what they would love to be in the future, what they would love to see in the future um, as individuals and as community. And the word ecologia is actually a Greek word that I learned on a sort of roots trip back to my great-grandparents' village in a town on the Peloponnese called Cardomili. And ecologia is a, a word that we don't have a direct translation for in English, similar to ecology, but much more expansive. Ecologia incorporates time, past, present, and future. It incorporates culture, family, 
community as well as the ecological environment around us. And it bundles all of those elements together. So you think about the history of our culture, of our environment, you think about the present, and you think about the future. And it's like this sustainable cycle, seeing all of those things as one, is ecologia. So when they talk about ecologia, it's this kind of interconnection between all of those elements wrapped up into this one word philosophy that we don't even have a word for in English, which I think tells us something about our language. Um, and I think it's hard to envision or imagine a concept like that when you don't even have words in your culture or one word that describes, describes that phenomenon. So it, it sees the interconnections between the past and the present um, and the future. It sees and acknowledges that our ancestors are still with us today and are living out into our futures. It, it connects the, um, you know, the environmental state of the world is going to affect our grandchildren's grandchildren things that happened a hundred years ago. So it's, it's a beautiful way to acknowledge that, um, that connection through time and space and people and land. So there's a kind of holism there. Yeah. I think in our culture, we're just beginning to grasp the concept of the environment in terms of it being a critical part of our existence, our being in this world. Where does this whole visioning process come into play and what is it that you are envisioning and mm -hmm. how are you bringing that into this world this western perspective that we are sort of exiled in yeah yeah so i guess the philosophy of this visioning business ecology arising that i started is that comes from a community education roots philosophy, which is what I studied at Goddard, that communities, just like individuals or like animals, communities are an organism. It's a very holistic perspective, as you, you said it perfectly. Um, and so you can't lift up, you know, a cat. You can't just like lift up one ear of a cat. You know, you, you have to lift up the whole cat, the whole organism, the whole beast. And so the philosophy of this visioning in Ecology Arising is that um, we're viewing individuals and communities holistically as one organism, and we want to raise up that organism, that community together, and that realizing not one of us can raise up without the rest. And I see my role, sort of how am I doing that right now in this day and age, um, is to be a, almost a channel or a facilitator to create spaces for those communities to rise up together. So it looks a lot like helping that organism to function interdependently. So sometimes it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one relationship building work within a community. Um, sometimes it looks like gathering people together in the same community and doing um, some kind of uniting activity like sitting in silence together or like singing around and having some kind of routine space where people can just simply get together and connect. And what I found is after you start building that sense of community and unitedness, 
and this is also part of our philosophy of Ecologia Rising, is that the questions that need to be asked or the solutions, if there is such thing as that, or any ideas or visions will arise from those entities in that community or from the individuals themselves. So I don't see myself as bringing in anything from the outside. I see myself as having a unique sort of outsider perspective, not objective, because I, I don't know if I really believe in objectivity, at least not in this kind of qualitative um, work, but I see myself as creating those spaces so that those seeds that are already existent in that community, those buried deep in people and deep in those communities can just rise and germinate and grow. And, you know, so I can help to sort of prep the soil bed, if you will, um, for that garden to grow. And I think that vision is so powerful um, and that we're not really taught how to vision in school. I think six-year-olds are really good at it before they've really gone through a lot of schooling. And so my trick is working with a lot of adults recently in communities and one-on-one. Um, it's the hardest thing to get them to go through an imagination exercise. Even when you tell them, this is a totally unrealistic, impractical exercise. I want you to think that you have all the time in the world and all the money in the world. What would you envision with your life inside of this community? What would you love your community to look like in the future? And I have to ask that same question and restate it about 10 different times <laughs> because our rational mind comes in and takes over because we're taught in this society and for good reason, there are realities that exist that, oh, that's not possible or no, you have to do this because that's not practical and that could never work because of X, Y, and Z reasons, which could be all very true. Um, but what a lot of think tanks are doing now is they they want to cast that net of imagination really wide and really broad. And that's where a lot of innovative, creative, unique ideas come out of this space if we really allow ourselves to unlock the imagination, which is infinite. <laughs> and we rarely allow ourselves to go there. We can come up with, you know, you put two crazy ideas together from two different people and then you start having a conversation around them in community and you could end up with a really amazing idea that you start whittling and honing down and bringing it back to planet Earth, back into reality realm. And you'll start doing that later in your strategic plan. But a lot of this um, visioning exercise is what I do when I first get to a community in order to sort of plant that seed or to have that almost like a carrot dangling in front of the donkey's face of this is going to get us through hard times if we can all co-create a vision that we can all be on board on because we've co-created it together then when we need to motivate or when we need to um, figure out where we're going then we're going to have a clear picture of where we want to be on our roadmap. and once we get clear of where we are right now be really honest of where we are right now, then there's an infinite number of ways that we can start planning our roadmap, which is like a strategic plan of how to get there so that it's not accidental. We're not stumbling along. And I think a lot of life, I'll just speak personally that I've sort of stumbled along, but I think we have more power than we realize to manifest and envision what we want and then take practical steps to go towards it. So even though it may sound like I'm doing a lot of idealistic, unrealistic work. 
I have a very practical side that I strongly believe will follow that first visioning process. So how have you experienced this kind of work? Where did this first begin for you? How did you first encounter this? And what inspired you to get into this work? And how did that door open? Because as you mentioned, a lot of people, you kind of have to drag into it. You have to ask over and over again in, in all sorts of different ways before they... It's kind of like pointing the person in the opposite direction that they've been looking in their entire life as if that whole other side of the spectrum doesn't exist. It's impossible, as if the world is only half-sided. Right. So where did it begin for you, and how did you discover this, or did you always know this? No, I I really discovered this through my Goddard work and being introduced to people, faculty, and other students here. Martina Batinelli is another student who... We started, um, she had been doing some individual visioning sessions for friends, you know, as a gift, people she stayed with, and she was telling me about them, and she just started coaching me. We would start visioning with a friend of ours together, and we'd start doing a little mind map, and then I started reading Collective Visioning by Linda Stout for my Goddard work, for my thesis work. She does a lot of community work, especially in Katrina, the aftermath of Katrina areas and schools. And she would envision with students who would take fourth graders into her time traveling machine. And she'd say, we're going into the future. We're going 20 years into the future. And our school is beautiful. And it's rebuilt after, you know, their school had just been decimated by Katrina. And I read her book and it was incredibly inspiring to see what was possible. So she was a huge influence and then my faculty, Jackie and Carla here, just really encouraging me to follow this thread. My thesis work was studying land-based craft communities and how they sustain themselves. What is the secret glue that makes communities tick? You know, why doesn't everybody just leave? How have they continued for so long? And especially land-based communities today that derive part of their subsistence off of the land in this more sort of modern technological era, they're fewer and farther between, at least in this country. And somehow out of that work, I started finding a lot of, I guess, healing in myself in the communities that I lived with and researched and wanted to not just figure out how they continue to hold on or continue to thrive, but how do we create more communities that are thriving how do we create communities that we love? How do we create communities that are supportive and healing and socially just, ecologically just, uh, that raise every living organism in that community up together? You know, how do we create those kind of communities for our children and for us right now and in the future? So I guess my thesis work took more of a, okay, how can I use this research to build a life that I want to see in the world that I think a lot of people share. I think when you get down to the basics, a lot of people have very similar visions deep down. You know, people want love and belonging and health and healing. And why is that so difficult in this world? It doesn't have to be, or does it? And why is it so difficult to even imagine it? And why is it so difficult to imagine it, right? Mm -hmm. 
And that's the obstacle, the biggest obstacle I'm running into. And if we can't even imagine it, how are we supposed to accidentally stumble upon it? I don't think so. We're going to go on the same trajectory that the world is headed right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if we don't step off of that moving escalator, I actually like the analogy of the current. If we don't swim to the side and start walking up, or if we don't swim against the current, we're just going to be swept along. And I see the current right now as a lot of corporate influences. I see it as a mainstream culture, at least in the United States, that is not healthy for the majority of people that leaves behind a lot of voices and discriminates against many people and that rapes the land. And I want to envision something different. So tell me about some of the communities that you've lived in and what you've learned from them. And what are the things that are most important to you? And how is that connected with this work that you're doing and this notion of creating communities that have all of these qualities that, as you said, on the deepest level, we're all seeking out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, really great questions. In the past, I guess, 12 months, I've lived in six different communities. I've defined community pretty broadly. So the first four were for my thesis research and... Oh, so within Goddard? Within Goddard. Okay. And then I graduated and I continued this work, actually, through my business, Ecole Here Rising. And the first four communities, through my thesis research, I was not doing any visioning work officially. It's sort of where I was formulating the idea of Ecology Rising and what inspired this visioning process that I'm now doing. So the first four communities, I went to Earthwalk right here in Plainfield, Vermont, and spent a month living and interning under the mentorship of Angela Gibbons. And it's like a forest school for kids, and it also has adult education, and it's all about building connection, building connection with the earth, building connection with oneself, and building connection with others. And then I went to Greece, which is where I mentioned earlier, I went back to my great-grandparents' village where I still have relatives. So I did a roots trip back to Greece. After that, I went to Berea College, which is in Kentucky, and it has an educational farm, and it does a lot of Appalachian crafts. And after that, I went to the Rochester Folk Art Guild, which is back where I'm working now. And they are also a land-based craft community. They're actually the only intentional community I studied. The other ones were nonprofits or a village in the case of my family's village. And then I worked after I graduated at Long Way Home, which is a nonprofit in Guatemala, started by Matt, who is a also an EDU master's graduate. And then I went back to the Rochester Folk Art Guild to also do visioning work there. And that's where I am currently right now. So the one takeaway I think I got that really inspired the work I'm doing now is something my great aunt who practically adopted me like a grandmother when I got to Greece and I hadn't seen her in 20 years I'd only met her once in my life but the level of hospitality especially when you're a family member is incredible in Greece and I interviewed her in Greek I learned the questions in Greek and I recorded her and I actually didn't need a translator for her answer to sort of the core question of my thesis research, which was, what is the secret glue that keeps your community going? 
or keeps your community alive today. And she just said, agape, love. And she didn't hesitate, and she said it with... And I think you need to define that, because in in the English language, we have this one ubiquitous word that mm-hmm. covers an incredibly wide range yeah. of concepts around love. Right, it's true. I think Greeks have six different words for love or something. I mean, they have the sort of eros romantic love, they have the philia, like the friendly love, and the agape. I should look more into exactly what kind of love that is, but I think it's a very deep, sort of broad community love. I'm not sure. You know, it'd be really interesting to interview people on what they think agape would translate to in English. I know it sounds cheesy, like love, but I sort of realized that, you know, a lot of the things that I do, my daily actions, are sometimes motivated more out of fear than out of love. And if we're able to notice and choose, sort of hit the pause button on our life, and if we have an intention to act from our hearts out of love instead of out of fear, I think that would allow us to envision and then enact these kinds of ecologia, truly sustainable connected community or the beloved community, quoting MLK, that is what I'm striving to create through ecologia rising. So that's sort of the core strategy or secret glue that so I observed. Like, it's like creating fertile soil for love to grow because yeah. fear closes the heart yeah. and love is the opening of the heart. Yeah. And we live in a society where people, you, you mentioned that it may sound cheesy to be talking about love, but that would only be to people, for people who are jaded by the experience of, of letting fear dominate their lives. Or maybe not jaded, maybe, you know, rightly traumatized. And we've and all... very skeptical of, yeah. of the possibility of, of really being able to experience love in this world, yeah. this kind of world. I mean, I think we all have experienced loss and trauma around opening up our hearts to love and then that not working out in whatever form. And that's scary and that's part of living. Life is a cycle and we can't just be you know, peace, love, and happiness all the time. That's not what I'm calling for. I'm calling for the waves of life in this as it flows. But, you know, a math teacher told me in high school, he had this sign on the wall, just the power of the mind. If you think you're not going to get it, you aren't. I really think that the power of our mind and our imagination to be able to, I guess it's a kind of faith. It's a kind of leap that you have to take to envision something based on love instead of maybe fear-based practical where you won't be disappointed yeah if it doesn't work out yeah which is what i was referring to by the term jaded Mm, yeah it's a defense mechanism yeah and when you're on the defensive again you're shut down it's not an environment where seeds can really grow Mm mm-hmm and I love that metaphor of, of working with seeds and creating fertile ground for those seeds to grow and helping people go deep into their relationship with those seeds and to know what those seeds are and to empower, guide people into the possibility of realizing those seeds in some way. Yeah, it's funny, my dad is a seed-saving farmer. I grew up on a, a farm 
and he saves a variety of Floriani red flint corn and a Cherokee long ear small popcorn. It's an organic sort of heirloom rare varieties of corn that he sells to a small seed company in the mid-Atlantic region. And I, I think about seeds a lot. Um, you know, those seeds especially um, could have gone extinct, could still go extinct with lots of issues like GMO pollination and contamination. But what those seeds represent to me are our ancestors and ancestry, people who came to this land in the U.S. before we did, and they contain a value, a culture, ideas of saving and passing on for the next, right? Even if there's a famine and you don't have a lot of food that winter, you have to save a little bit of your seed, otherwise you're not going to have food next year, and you're not going to have food for your children's children. You know, to think that that corn seed, it relies on humans to plant it each year and cultivate and select for that certain large, juicy ear of corn or whatever you may want to select for is pretty amazing lineage. So it's a kind of passing on. And I think seeds are really powerful in both physical and metaphorical ideas. Seeing seeds as ideas has been helpful for me. And as we move into the future, it's not efficient to leave everything from the past behind. You you really want to bring the best of mm-hmm. your past and mm-hmm. of tradition with you. Not necessarily bring everything because some of it doesn't work well and some of it isn't going to serve you. Like if you look at our culture that we live in in this country, there's a lot of that culture that we may not want mm-hmm. to nurture anymore mm-hmm. that we may want to allow to just with right. her on the vine and exactly as we work towards creating and focusing more upon what we really want you you had this great metaphor of a current flowing mm-hmm. and that when we allow ourselves to just go with that current the thought that came up for me was that's like the way we relate to the world in an unconscious way right when we're not paying attention we're not thinking right. about what it is that we really want what's going on inside of us in our heart right and that intention, that effort to swim off to the side mm-hmm. and start contemplating how are we going to go in a different direction. Right. And the first key to it is just noticing that we're in a current. And I got this analogy from a Tara Brock interview with Krista Tippett, where Tara Brock said she was going out on a swim and she was a little nervous because they were going out to this island and coming back and she hadn't swam in a while. And she got in, she started swimming, and she was really feeling good about herself when she got to the little island. She was doing some stretching, and she's like, that wasn't so bad. You know, I'm, I'm in better shape than I thought. And then, you know, it was time to go back. They took a little break. She started swimming and immediately is out of breath and was like, what is going on? And she realized she'd been swimming with the current on the way there. And she then made the connection. Her interview was on racism in the States right now. That that's what it feels like to have white privilege that you don't even realize it, that you're going with the current. And I think, you know, every time we participate in this society, in some way we're going with a current, you know, whether or not it is getting into our car and burning that fossil fuel and not even really making the connection that we're harming the environment or that we are upholding some kind of, you know, me as a white woman, some kind of internalized superiority, with my white identity 
So I think the first step is being really present and noticing what direction we're going in, subconsciously or consciously. So if you don't really know where you are right now and where you're going, then you're not going to be able to change course. So then if you can kind of name that, notice that, the next step is to find out, okay, if I go with the current, I'm going to go there. But actually, I want to go somewhere else. Or where do I really want to go? A lot of people don't even necessarily, or they may think they know where they want to go. But another really important thing about this visioning process is going, diving in deeper into finding Mm -hmm. out what is is truly most important to us. Mm -hmm. And again, for people who have been um, oriented by fear, Mm-hmm. That's going in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's a scary place. It's yeah. something that Angela Gibbons told me um, at Earthwalk. When I asked her, we were doing a tracking. We were out in the woods on a snowy day, and we were following some, I think they were, they ended up being fox tracks, but we didn't know that at the time. And we were trying to follow them, and they weren't super clear in the snow, and we were I was trying to figure out what direction. How do you know what direction they're going, Angela? How do you know it's walking that way? And she said, look into the track and look for the deepest, darkest shadow place. And that will point you in the direction that it's going because it's stepping on the toe right at the front. And so it's going to make the deepest, darkest shadow. And I was pretty blown away by her answer on a more personal, spiritual level of, okay, if I don't know where to go, Let's look to the deepest, darkest place in myself. And maybe that will give me a clue of what direction to go from there. In your work, what is your overall vision long-term? What are your hopes for this work? For Equal Rising or for my personal life vision or... Both. And where they come together. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that this business could grow to a shared leadership structure. I don't know if, I don't think I believe in hierarchy. It's easy for me to say because I've never really lived in a truly egalitarian community or society for very long, but um, I know it, it has a lot of challenges, but I would love to design a business where everybody has equal say. So I am trying to build partnerships in Nicole Heorizing right now and my friend Martina who I mentioned is joining our team and I would love to see visioning facilitators as a common career path. I think that if every school, nonprofit, community, urban planner, you know, institution of any kind, you know, corporate had a vision facilitator or a team ideally of vision facilitators who could work with the school or the community, the individuals in it, first work with them individually. My process is just like you were saying, getting really in touch first, each individual with what they would love to see, what they would love to envision for the future. And then bringing those individuals together and slowly seeing where those overlap, having a conversation, working on the interrelational dynamics and then bringing that vision up to the collective level it's a co-created vision to say how can we all invest and buy into this community this school what do we really want it to look like and what are going to be the anticipated challenges and what can we do to mitigate those and or what compromises are we going to have to make or 
how big of a risk and a leap can we take together knowing that this is the ideal community that we would love to see. So imagine if every community since its inception had a team working with it to help guide them through this process, first getting in touch with themselves on a very deep level, which if done well, I would argue is a lot of inner work. It's very courageous work. Some people call it spiritual work. I consider it very spiritual for me, at least. And you have to get in touch with a deeper self. And then, you know, if you had people who had the values, and this is my opinion because I hold these ecologia values, this idea that communities can cycle in a sustainable, healthy, loving way for all of time if we treat each other in the world with love, then I think we would have to consider how is this action affecting the environment? How is this action affecting this population over here before we acted? Because the ecologia principle is a very holistic very egalitarian. Very egalitarian. It's it's respecting each element of the environment as much as our own self-interest. Exactly. Individually and collectively. Exactly. It it is not a human-centered philosophy. It sees humans as part of nature, because we are, as one piece of it. In that philosophy, we wouldn't be able to, you know, develop any piece of land without really thinking about how it's healing or helping. And I think for me, personally where I'm going with this is my personal dream for my life is to maybe be part-time involved in ecology rising and then quarter time in the long-term future and then be on my future farm with a future community that I have helped to co-build and co-envision and this farm is a center for education for political activism for healing and for crafts and for art and for music and dance and for preserving ancient traditions and bringing in new traditions. Basically being a place for culture creatives, which is a a term also um, that I learned from an Earthwalk staff member. And that means that we have the ability to create our own culture, to create our own lives, to create our own futures. And I think that's a very empowering place to be. So my personal vision is to be on the land on a farm somewhere doing this work in community together and that also stems out of a loss that I've had in my life. I grew up on a family farm that we leased about 15 miles from the White House outside of Washington DC. My dad had started leasing this farm about 30 years ago in Maryland and as I mentioned he's a seed saver so he was saving these organic varieties of indigenous corn seed and about Four years ago now, the public school board in Montgomery County, who my father has leased these 20 acres from for the past 30 years, let us know that our lease would not be renewed. In fact, we had to evacuate in 30 days because a private soccer complex was to be built on the farm and it would be a locked and gated pay-for-play adult league kind of soccer complex. And so the community rallied together and we protested this idea that the county really tried to railroad through illegally. So we fought them on legal, political, and grassroots levels. We're able to, over the process of almost two years, defeat the soccer plan proposal. Um, In the process, we got an extension on the land. I started an educational farm on that land to say, hey, why don't we, instead of having a private soccer plex or a 
private organic farm have a public educational farm for the local public school students and start growing food maybe for the cafeterias if at one point in future our cafeterias could take local produce and so I spent about three years of my life advocating for that vision and that idea and started it when we did have access to land had about 600 students out it was very successful but when our lease was legally up they decided not to renew it and we had no leverage to demand that they renew our lease and it's been lying vacant ever since so there's a 20 acre piece of land in a default GMO free zone that's just sort of growing up in weeds and the fences are falling down it's been a few years now and we've been continuing to just fight off you know silly development plan after silly development plan in my opinion but without really being able to convince the school board that there could be this beautiful vision for this land and I think what really was painful and is still painful is that our political community the culture and community around the DC area or at least who have power did not recognize the land as having any kind of inherent value besides its development price tag they couldn't understand I don't think me and my family's emotional relationship or attachment to this piece of land they thought we wanted to just like hold on to the land for like a land grab because it was making us money or something which is silly because you pretty much lose money farming these days and (laughs) my dad was definitely not making money off of this property so what I realized is they couldn't in their cultural paradigm they couldn't realize or recognize that land has to, to me, land has a value because it's inherently, I view this piece of land as a holy space, as a sacred space, as a life-giving space, as something that's alive and something that is going to give infinitely. Wendell Berry said in a speech, the value of land is infinity. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much like our imaginations. It's, Fertile ground yes, is, thank is you. like a perfect metaphor for yeah. imagination. If you tend to it, you care for it, it will continue to provide mm-hmm. for every year for infinity, you know, until a meteor hits this planet. So, um, It's like it's the source of our infinite power. Yeah. I mean, mm. In this world, we struggle in our relationships. We struggle with everything around us. And those are various forms of power struggles. And it's as if we don't understand what power really is. And we think mm-hmm. that arm strength versus imaginative mm-hmm. strength or power. Right. And we don't, in our culture, we don't value imagination. Imagination right. is correlated with play, mm-hmm. and people don't respect play. Right. Play is something that you do after you've worked sufficiently, you've earned the mm-hmm. right to play. Right. Right. It's like that. Protestant ethic that has been drummed into people in our culture that you have to work there's no free lunch one thing that really struck me a long long time ago I saw this poster where the eagle lands there's no rent Mm, yeah and this reminds me I've been reading or listening to Douglas Rushkoff and he talks about the digital age and a lot of people are conflicted in Reconciling, you know, digital technology, the increasing um, expansion of technology with the natural world. But he talks about digital technology, the understanding of it. It's programming. It's it's a software thing. 
talks all about the dilemma between you either program or you get programmed. Mm. And if you're not aware of that <laughs> dynamic, that and that that's where power comes in. It's like yeah. power to determine the course of your own life. Mm -hmm. Because if you just play with your digital toys without any awareness of them, mm -hmm. then you end up with the digital age and digital technology steamrolling us yep. and creating parking lots everywhere. Mm -hmm. Versus yeah. if we recognize the power of programming. Right. He's a big advocate of learning programming. If you're going to use digital technology, you should learn to program because it's, in, it's critical for understanding hmm. the dynamics that most people look at technology as read only. There's read only and then there's read and write, where you can read it, but then you can alter it, you can tweak it, you can change it to suit your needs, your vision. You can plug your imagination into it and you can make it into what you want, make what you want out of it. Mm -hmm. Have an ongoing, evolving dialogue, not in the Darwinian sense, but in the conversational sense that you create when you're living in a live, dynamic community where everybody listens to each other and honors mm -hmm. each other yeah, and is in touch with what's most important to each other. Yeah, I really like that. I love that technology metaphor. I don't usually think in technological metaphors. Me but opened my mind. Yeah, I mean, because if you apply that to a community or society or a county... Because we're um, not going back. We have right. this technology and we're not going backwards, but we have the opportunity to integrate old values into the new mm -hmm. and bring awareness right. into it so that we don't create a monster that, right. that runs away with the world, that consumes itself and eats which, its children. Which is literally what we're doing with creating now corporate entities that have <laughs> human status now. Which, unfortunately, we created over 100 years which ago. Which we created, yeah. yeah. So I agree, I think, to the extreme, you know, we're talking about basically corporations having a right. I mean, my take on that is, okay, if, if corporations are people too now, then they should be subject to lifetime imprisonment. Exactly. And so, <laughs> or, you know... Or even execution. How do you Right, execute? if they kill someone, then they should go to and be terminally... So anyway, that's another yeah, tangent. That's a whole other thing. But yeah. the learning to program is really interesting because, one, as a community educator, we're taught to utilize all of the resources and tools and ideas, people, technological resources existing already in the community and harnessing them and having them talk to each other and come together to say, okay, what assets do we have and how can we be really creative and resourceful to use them? Because there's often an infinite number of solutions to one question or one problem. Infinite we, is the key word. Yeah, we usually yeah. only see maybe one, two, or three. Right. The established um, ones. Right, but yeah. there are usually more. And yeah, there's a lot of places I want to take that, but if we learn to program, if we take that into the community level, that's almost like... I mean, what the experience on the farm taught me was how to organize, community organizing. And that's, in a way, learning how the back end of a community or society functions. So I learned the political system. I learned how to organize in the grassroots. And I learned who makes decisions. And I learned how to affect those decisions. And once you start organizing and people organize themselves, this is like Miles Horton, we need to get people to organize themselves, then you have power even if you don't have any money. But our capitalist culture, our mainstream culture tells us, yeah, if you don't have money, then you're voiceless and you don't mm. mean anything. Or if you don't have, you have no power. And they don't want us to know that the power and maybe our only freedom lies in our imagination. And we can actually utilize our imagination to 
have a read-write relationship with money itself because the money that most people in our culture assume is the way it is and cannot be changed because they don't understand it is not just a read-only technology. We, through the power of our imagination, creative imagination, can change money completely right. to work for us in ways that support what's most important and most valuable to us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that there are a lot of things in our current society and culture that we don't question at all. We just assume is the way it is and it cannot be changed. But that's a false assumption is what right. he's right. saying, that all these things that we think are read-only technologies, they're all read-write. We just have to realize that. Yeah, we just have to go to that back end and yeah. reprogram and it and learn how to yes. write our own programs or write our own futures. And I just want to address something, you know, I, I think just giving a little personal background, you know, I come from a middle to upper class white family, grew up in the suburbs of DC. And when I told my mom about my vision, she said, you know, Sophie, you gotta, gotta be careful. Like, you know, you're saying all these things about visioning and that's easy for you to say, like you were, you know, we paid for your undergraduate education. Like you were, you know, given a lot. And so you can go off into the world and you have a lot of doors open to you to be able to have the space to envision and, and maybe carry out what you would love to do with your life. But, you know, not everyone can do that. There are realities, Sophia. You know, there are economic realities. And, I'm, and, and my response was, yes, I understand that concern. And yes, this is coming from a white female privileged perspective and, and this whole philosophy is... And if this is only for people like us, <laughs> that's messed up. This has to be for everyone. The point of this is that everyone has access to their imagination. And not just that, that we all have a responsibility, I think, to change our culture, to rewrite all of our own futures and presence, and able to lift us all up. And we are all being drawn into this current and yes I have an easier road than many and not but but and we have to have everybody envisioning what they love otherwise you know it's not working and it's going to take people a privilege to help move the current in a different direction yeah so I'm trying to leverage all of the power and privilege that I do have. In so a there's a lot of guilt. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of guilt and yeah. shame in our culture mm -hmm. about our privilege and what our ancestors did to other people's ancestors and to the world. To obtain that power and to privilege obtain, often. Right. Right. So it is in a way of um, how can I leverage and how can we all leverage our own power and privilege or our own perspective and perspective to be able to envision a world that, again, is a place for all of us to be interdependent and equal as a contributing organism to all rise up together. And so if you look at it on, you know, a community level, a society level, a national level, a global level, those are the kinds of concentric circles that when you zoom out is what I'm talking about. And you beautifully spoke about this inner work that we have to do, the self-reflection, mm -hmm. this understanding our programming or the things that we learned and a big part of education particularly in our culture is unlearning the things that we learned right. before we understood what we were absorbing right and there's a deconditioning yeah are we willing and ready to unlearn 
And, yeah. and it's a deeply spiritual process, what you were talking about. It yeah. is. And it can't be, you can't force anyone to want to unlearn. They have to want to do that. And so, yeah, yeah I'm... They have to see the value in it somehow. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I struggle the most with when I look at the world around me. When I look at it in that me and the other, like people on the other side who do seem to be content with their privilege mm-hmm. or what they perceive to be their privilege. But I... I don't really see that they're happy with what they have either because they're shutting out their imagination. They're, they're not in touch with what's really most deeply important to and, them either. And, they're, and we all are suffering from, again, an internalized cultural and societal feelings of, again, false superiority. If you are in the position of privilege, you know, false inferiority. And there's, there are ways that in, in which we suffer from this machine or this current that is taking us all and when you get in touch with that I think that does motivate people to wake up and this is a kind of wake up swim off side to the shore and kind of see the mountain where you want to be the vision that you want to and start hiking up to it how do we envision a world in which that is not the only rational option or that's not the only option and that that is happening at all so how do we create a culture and envision a world where people are not put into those places why we have a surplus of food in this country why are people starving these are simple questions that when you know kids ask again when six-year-old ask you that it's really hard to answer and i don't honestly know (laughs) and you know, simple things. Wendell Berry, again, a big inspiration, talks about this. It's in this kind of society, you are seen as crazy if you ask those kinds of questions. And yet, that is a very basic question. I mean, Jackie Fisher, my advisor, just asked me those questions, and I'm going to be writing a children's book this upcoming year to actually rewrite the vision of the farm that I grew up on that is still in limbo, its future. And I'm going to write the vision that I would love to see and put it out as sort of an awareness tool. Put it out to the world and see what happens. And she was saying, why don't you have, coming from the perspective of a child, asking these really basic questions about our society. You know, we have a surplus of food. Why can't some children eat? I don't want to live in a world where that (laughs) is a question that I won't be able to answer if I ever have a child as a mother, I want to live in a society where that is a given and people don't have to worry about that. And then we can start creating this space, the space to be living proactively instead of living day to day in a reactionary fear way. And we have, I think, a great potential to evolve just like those seeds were selected and evolved into what um, fit our needs for making a really good cornbread. We can evolve I think our imaginations, our brains, our culture into what we would love to see in the world. So, yeah. Yeah, to recognize that there is a real choice between creating a really beautiful world Mm -hmm. and a world that has been chugging along either out of control or through inertia. Yeah, Charles Eisenstein's book, More Beautiful World, Our Hearts Knew as Possible. I mean, there's a lot of people who are saying, hey, wait, like, there's another way. We don't have to go for the lesser of two evils. Let's go for what we really want. Right. Often you think you have a choice between two things, and there is often an infinite number of choices, not just A or B, the ones that society tells us we have, you know. 
So yeah, I'm a, I'm a proponent of doing things every day that are kind of a curveballs, you know, making a proposal, whether it's formal or informal, you know, to your local library that you would like to organize a monthly gathering for dreaming about a future of it could be as little as the library courtyard or about, you know, a local homeschooling cooperative or you know, making a garden at your public school and you go to your library and you've written up a two-page proposal and you hand it to them, you know, there's a good chance they're going to say yes. And maybe that was a solution to, instead of the students at that public high school getting sent home when they get into trouble and being expelled, they have to give 30 hours of service into that community garden that is then growing food for the local homeless shelter. You just solved three solutions, community solutions, that otherwise were sort of fear-based you did something wrong, we're going to expel you. You turn that energy of that teenager into a really helpful service act to start helping to feed. You know, that's the solution that just because you happen to organize yourself to say, here's a space and time for us to envision something that otherwise won't happen. And there's no form for that in this society. You have to be creative and you have to envision that. I think that's where we can start to change the culture of where we live and once those things become more and more successful, you know, there's the beautiful solutions site online. I think that's a great, it's hooked up with the Naomi Klein documentary and book of beautiful trouble. It's just a lot of innovative communities responding specifically to global climate change, but their social and ecological solutions that are doing really out of the box creative solutions that they didn't fill out a form. And, you know, this is something that you have to dream up outside of our current system. If we have to get ourselves out of the problems that, we've dug ourselves into, we have to think in a different way. We can't keep thinking the rationalist fear way that got us into some of these problems, you know, the ecological crisis, the racism in this country. I mean, we need to start thinking in a revolutionary way. We have to look to our imaginations. So that's sort of where I'm hoping Ecologia can help. Is there a way to strengthen the muscle of our imagination that will give us a more inward sense of empowerment to imagine new ways, new things yeah. that are completely different than what we see around us. Because mm-hmm. that's yeah. a difficult place to be when you're kind of looking at the seedling of mm-hmm. your imagination yeah. and yeah. having it trampled. Yeah, I think there's tons of exercises you can do. There's tons of daily practices you can do One, I would start of just being still and getting in touch with your presence in your own body. And then from there, with another person or with yourself, try playing. I think a lot of games and play, like you were mentioning, are able, especially for adults who don't get that anymore. Um, There's a lot of studies now. Harvard just did some studies on play and the importance of that, even for all ages, helps to unlock our imagination so maybe choose a six-year-old who you adore and have them look to them as your mentor to teach you how to play and how to imagine. Or maybe you're getting together with some friends over lunch and you take five minutes to write a really silly, huge, um, ideal, uh, it could even be your dream house, you know, or your dream community community, or your dream birthday party you can do little things your dream garden whatever it is that makes you tick you know if you're a potter your dream bowl if you could you know just start really small and then 
exercise that muscle of and don't be afraid of going big right oh there's a really neat ted talk i just listened to it's called the peace game oh i did a show on it just recently oh my gosh so what was his name john hunter john hunter oh my gosh brilliant i just listened to that the other week so things like that games that are tackling a big problem Mm -hmm. because i think children are uniquely qualified to not only ask those questions but to answer them, too, because they haven't been programmed right. to the degree that the older generations have been boxed into these very narrow ranges of, of what they consider to be possible. Right. We also need adults to be engaging in this work and yeah. need them being able to use their imaginations to unlearn. And another thing I found a great obstacle in my work is just being open to change, for adults to be open to change to be open to imagine if you can retain those two qualities into your adulthood and elderhood somehow they get beaten out of us in this system in this society mm-hmm. that would change the world i think you know before you can even activate the imagination muscle i think you have to like you were saying unlearn and so that means noticing the undercurrents on every level of what we are programmed and taught to think so that goes back to for me example internalized racism that goes back to me of thinking that the land is something that we can use and exploit for our comfort benefits it goes back to everything that this society takes it's the hidden curriculum of our society we have to learn what that is and then we have to unlearn it we have to notice it we have to feel it we have to feel it and we have to dismantle it in ourselves so i think before you can imagine you have to imagine from a blank slate if you're imagining under that paradigm it's difficult to get outside of that. So first you have to really clear yourself. It's almost like... You have to acknowledge it first and Mm -hmm. and then you have to take responsibility for it. Yeah. Not that you did it or that it's your fault, but you have to take responsibility for existing in our world or your world. Right. And then... And your own self. I think, my opinion, that only when you really come to terms with it on that level can you honestly dismantle it. Yes. I totally agree. So first is noticing... Maybe you have to get still enough to notice. Then you have to dismantle it or be willing and able to unlearn it. Maybe that's like reprogramming our technology analogy. Maybe that's like rebooting and wiping. Then you have to wipe the slate. See who you're left with. That's sometimes interesting. Instead of just wiping clean, because I don't know if that works, (laughs) I think you have to take the components Uh of the code and rearrange the letters Mm. create a new sentence. Yeah. Re-envisioning is doing the same yeah. thing. It's, it's just looking at what is. You have to start where you are. Mm-hmm. And that requires you to be with whatever pain. I mean, often that's what we have to do is we have to face the pain of where we're at. And I, yeah. in our culture, we learn to either avoid it, deny it, or numb it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And we have to stop using those strategies and be honest with it to mm-hmm. really come to terms with those things because there's that old saying you can't get there from here which is act- <laughs> it actually means the exact opposite you have to be right here in order to even be able to take a step right from you, here. you have to know where you are then you have to know where you're going and only then can you know how to get there um yeah if, if one that, of, the imagination is about where you're going exactly that's the way you're going piece. and it may not yeah ultimately be where you really want to go but it's the first step yeah yeah the neat thing about a vision is it can shift and change i've been finding in every moment even within the same person and individual and it's beautiful because 
a vision is always in the future. Even when the present continues, and even if you've achieved the original vision you said, which would be really impressive, you know, oftentimes I think things happen and your vision changes and maybe something even bigger and grander and more wonderful happened. But let's say you got to that first initial vision, you're always going to have another one. And I think that that's, that's really exciting to have something to be looking toward on the horizon. And it's alive. Yeah. It's fluid. Yeah. And it, it's evolving. Mm-hmm. It's growing. Yeah. There was, there was an exercise that I learned probably about 10 years ago or so, and that was to spend 10 minutes every morning just writing down the things that I want. Mm-hmm. And that evolves over mm-hmm. time. Like, at first, you may just want things that are going to alleviate your current situations or you're suffering or right. you might just want these superficial things or you might want some deep things but everything changes your priorities change as you do that process and you start to go deeper yeah and deeper and deeper and things change yeah it's fluid Ooh, i like that it's i like that exercise i also have heard of people writing down 10 things that give them joy every day. And, uh, you know, it's funny. My friend just told me that his spiritual teacher in Hawaii told him to do that for three months, write down 10 things or everything in that day that gave you joy. And after those three months, look and find the theme. And that is your life's purpose. And I don't know if you can get your life purpose in three months that easily, but I think it's a very good practice to it's do. It's a good start. <laughs> And it, it, again, it ties us back to really this is an individual, for me, spiritual path that feels really enlivening. And I like the metaphor that Angela Gibbons, my mentor at Earthwalk, also used. She said she's an outdoor educator and and she says, "I, I hope for generations to come who are looking out. I don't want the generations to be looking down, you know, as if you have blinders on, only seeing the ground underfoot. You know, if you can look out and see the horizon and see where you are in the landscape in relationship to it, see where you're going. You know, we want to be, again, raising our children with the tools to be able to be looking out and to create and go where they want to go on the horizon. And right now I, you know, majored in education and and I think Goddard as an institution is doing a really great job of making sure we're not falling into the mold of, you know, just teaching kids in compartmentalized, specialized sort of blinder ways, but we're actually teaching kids to look at the world in a more peripheral, holistic view, in an empowered way. Interconnected and interdependent. Yeah, where they can determine where they're walking. And be in continual conversation with all the other elements around them. Mm-hmm. rather than being islands unto themselves. Exactly. Instead of being isolated islands with blinders, they are interdependent, like you said, and they're part of this world, and they're part of our past, and they're going to be part of our future. And I think, you know, in order to sustain this global community, if I've been researching the how communities sustain themselves, we're going to have to, we need to be educating and raising kids, like John Young says, who are super creative, super innovative, super intelligent, are able to think outside of the box and come up with really complex solutions to really complex problems that are here. So it's a necessity. And I think that relates to Einstein's statement. He said that we can't solve the problems of the world with the thinking that created them. So it's like these right. younger generations, we can't use the old status right. quo right. approach. Yeah. Which is the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and right. expecting a different result. Exactly. 
Yeah. It seems so simple when we're saying it, but it's kind of like there's this big brick wall up there. That's, yeah. That's a, that can be a really painful thing to, to face when we know that there's this incredibly beautiful world like a hair's breadth away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the insanity piece is interesting. Again, going back to Wendell Berry, one of my heroes, he has a book of poems called The Mad Farmer Poems. And it's this idea, again, that I touched on earlier. How has it become normal to drive to the grocery store and say you buy some apples from New Zealand? That apple was grown in New Zealand, sprayed with maybe probably a lot of chemicals that were mined in a totally different country, shipped in, boxed with wood from another country, delivered, maybe taking however many months to actually get to you. Think of all the oil that was burned on the way. All the The, tankers that have been going back and forth. It goes through distributions to get to you. And then going to your local farmer's market and buying that apple that was just grown right there, hopefully organically, in my ideal world, somehow in our capitalistic economic paradigm, the choice is to buy the cheaper, somehow the New Zealand apple because of commodity of scale is cheaper. And so how has it become normal and mainstream to choose that when that doesn't make any sense? I mean, that's more work. They're playing convoluted games. (laughs) Convoluted economic games with subsidies that actually make that That seem normal. Economic, ecologic model more affordable, well, not affordable, but but cheaper. Yeah, it's a capitalist the, yeah. economic argument, which is yeah. very rational and makes a lot of sense on right. one level. On one level. On an economic level, that makes perfect sense. And I understand why people make that choice. And I make that choice a lot too, especially with clothes. I'm really into the fiber shed movement because I'm a weaver. You know, if you take a cotton shirt, for example, <laughs> oh my gosh, so that's even more crazy. You have places growing GMO cotton in Texas, sending it off to maybe a factory in China to mill and and maybe, you know, child labor sew it into whatever it is, ship it to one country and then back to, a, I mean, yeah, I buy my $8 t-shirt yeah. and it's been all around the world yes. and back to me. And so, oh my gosh, the carbon footprint of that t-shirt. Okay, yeah. let's think about that, the yeah. pollution from that t-shirt. And how is it insane? For me as a young person, I'm really interested in natural dyeing and hand spinning and weaving. I actually enjoy it. It's something that I would love to do for a part-time job. So how is it somehow impossible to make a living to be able to raise my own sheep, to shear them, to spin it, to natural dye it and weave it? For all of my time, if you're looking on the economic level, you know, it would probably cost me $100, um, probably more, probably like $200 if I was really paying for all my time and the feeding the sheep to make that t-shirt, to weave a t-shirt. So that is not something that would be normal, right? It would be really weird if all my clothes, I did that. And so all of a sudden it becomes normal for me to go drive in a car to a place where a t-shirt shipped all over the world instead of, again, having a sheep in my backyard, sharing it, spinning it, making just something practical. Okay, that's not normal. So you live in a society where we're doing these crazy things, really, if you were an alien looking down at that. That's why I want to envision a different way. I think a different way is possible. I know it is. And we can't be calling each other crazies if we're envisioning another way that our hearts know is possible, again, to quote Charles Eisenstein. So that's just where I I keep coming back to. 
we have to do this. It's a coming together. It's a connection. It's building relationship. It's building community. It's empowering ourselves to change it. And yeah, I think I am in a generation where we know the government's not going to do anything. You know, it's barely functional. I can't even speak to each other. So it's time for us to make the change we want to see. Yeah. And we can do it. We could have an economic system where money is created out of need, not out of the desire to make profit, where banks lend money at interest into the economy for their benefit. Yeah. At their whim. We can Mm -hmm. make a a needs-based economy based on the needs of every person on the planet. Yeah. Think about that. I mean, that would be a fun exercise. businesses would all make out what they would do fabulously well because there'd be plenty of money to buy everything that they're creating. There'd be no shortage for anybody. But it's a completely different way of envisioning the system. And we have such a global economy now to organize the world. You know, as we can see in the climate summit in Paris, it's, it's very difficult. But yeah, I think, again, out to the concentric circles, we do need to start having more things like the Paris Climate Talks in order to organize ourselves globally because that uh, eventually is the scale that we're talking about ultimately. But it starts with each individual. Yes, it does. We have to empower ourselves on that level and then we can expand out concentrically. Mm -hmm. One of the communities I was working with, the power of community and connection is really strong. I think I do sometimes forget, even though I talk about it all the time, that we are individuals within a community. Our visions, I don't know if there is such thing as an individual vision, because our individual visions, after talking with a woman in one of the communities, she said, well, my individual vision changes, not just from moment to moment, but day to day. Mm -hmm. And it changes day to day based on who else is coming and showing up. And she says, she is more open and her vision is bigger and broader and more open to possibility and change when a lot of people show up and she hears their visions and she sees what they're excited about then her vision all of a sudden is much more possible and it gets a lot bigger and then she actually starts to have faith in it and unfortunately at first it was happening in the opposite direction there weren't as many people showing up at first and her vision started to dwindle Mm -hmm. and I hadn't really thought about how interdependent even what we think our individual you know what are my needs or my vision well it really depends on our connection to everything else and i see that in myself you know it's really hard for me to motivate to go out and garden or farm when i'm alone but when i was working on the educational farm with a lot of coworkers and volunteers and students i felt like i had infinite energy you know it was part of a movement and this is where our social movements are so important and our communities are so important for us we really thrive off of connection and to not see ourselves as separate so i almost think that the idea of an individual vision might be counterproductive sometimes because i don't know if i even believe in it anymore the isolated vision i think isolated right yeah That's a good distinction. Because on an individual level, we have to come to terms with our vision. We have to do the work Mm -hmm. of envisioning what's possible and moving in that direction. But yeah, we don't want to stay isolated, lock ourselves in a room and try and preserve that vision. Because if we do that, then we just rot. Right. We don't go anywhere. We don't grow. And we have to grow in community. We're the naked apes. We depend on each other. (laughs) So they say. (laughs) 
<laughs> Never heard that one before. But yeah, That's in old. theory. <laughs> That's so old. Yeah, stories. That's what we're doing all the time is telling stories. Yes. Everything we bring up are stories. All our memories are stories. Everything we think about the world around us is a story. Is a story. Everything right. we think about ourselves is a story. And that's the power of the wonderful power of the imagination is we can deliberately create new stories anytime we want as we continue to learn and mm-hmm. have conversations with people and the world around us. Yeah. That broad view looking up and Yeah. Yeah. Instead of looking at our feet, which is isolating. It is. Yeah. Yeah, At Earthwalk, I really learned the power of stories. They actually encourage and foster and tell stories every day. They tell little nature stories. You know, they ask the kids every morning, what are some of your nature stories that happened in the past week? And they're all raising their hands. They're really excited. And they're really beautiful. Everything from, you know, I found a cardinal's nest. And, you know, they start explaining it and, and you start to realize I didn't quite get the, the obsession with stories that Earthwalks seem to have. You know, they tell a big story at the end of the day. They encourage all the kids to tell stories. They see storytelling as a craft and an art. And I was talking to Ange one day and she says, well, everything can be encapsulated in a story. You can describe anything, you know, it's... It's time, it's place. You can describe a feeling and emotion. History is a story of the past. I had a sort of moment in Greece one night looking at the stars after a talk with some friends that I think I, I must have realized somehow that all I am is my history and my ancestors. I wouldn't be here without them. And everything we've ever known is the past besides this present moment. And... A storyteller once told me that you can always step off stage and take a pause and rewrite the story of our life, of your life, of how things are going. You know, we forget that we often have the ability to just pause and take a breath and think we can change it. We have the choice to act in that way. We have the choice to say something different. And we can have a choice to feel differently about our stories, mm-hmm. our past. Mm-hmm regardless of whether we believe that the past is malleable or not. Right. That's one of the things that I've been learning is, is that it's not so much what's happening in the world, but how, how we, we perceive it. to it. Yeah. We perceive and respond to it, yeah. What we do yeah. with that. Right. How creative and fluid we can be with it, whether mm-hmm. we dance with it or whether we allow ourselves to be crushed by it right. or any of the other infinite possibilities that we could choose or just fall into by default because we're not aware of our choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it comes back to noticing and paying attention and seeing. Vision. Mm-hmm. Very powerful thing. It is. A lot of elements in it. And there are, yeah. The th- I, we haven't even gotten into, you know, the third eye. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to close your eyes to see. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Right, you have to close your eyes to seeing what's out there all around you because that can mm-hmm. blind us to yeah. what's really possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, another way I think to activate that muscle, I keep a dream journal. And when I do, sometimes I get really good ideas from my dreams. Other times it's just inspiring because, you know, your dreams are this well of imagination. You know, sometimes they're scary and sometimes they're really great. But that's another 
area. Actually, I, I have a story of this community I'm working in right now. I kept a dream journal. I've been keeping a dream journal recently. It's a intentional Gurdjieff community. So Gurdjieff was a Russian Greek mystic born in the 1860s. He had a following and eight primary students. And one of his primary students was Mrs. Louise March, who translated all of his works into English and ended up starting this Rochester Folk Art Guild in New York as an intentional community in a way for individuals to reach self-actualization through the work of the crafts. And crafts were just a random medium that she chose in order to help teach lessons to a person to to be transformed on a uh, personal and spiritual level to reach their potential and, you know, in community. So I had a dream the first, you know, I think it was the second week I was there. I was, you know, asking a lot of questions, basically doing a needs assessment, checking in with each person individually, seeing where they were at. Um, wasn't doing any visioning. You know, I wasn't asking them visions. You don't do that first. First, you feel what's the problems you need to address, what are the things that they need to work on as a community with themselves. And uh, I was asking a lot of questions. And sometimes, especially in that community, asking questions is, is really valued and honored. Um, sometimes when it comes from a younger person who's just passing through, who doesn't know anything about the community, a question can be perceived as a challenge or challenging or a threat. And so I was trying to be really uh, tactful and respectful with my questions, but sometimes I'd ask a question that was pushing someone to their edge. And, you know, I kind of want to do that. I want, part of my job is to really help to stretch stretch what you think is possible for, for yourself, for the world, or being open to the possibility that it might not be the way that you think it is or that it could be a different way. So I was just asking a lot of questions and, uh, wasn't really sure if I was doing the right thing, was getting a little bit of pushback, and I had this dream. The the founder, Miss Louise March, had passed away. She's passed away 20 years ago, but there's portraits of her everywhere, and I think her essence and her, her spirit and her philosophy still live on there in many ways, and apparently she was a very wise spiritual teacher for them, and I had a dream that she came and visited me. She sat down, maybe 10 feet away from me, and kind of had her hair all up in a bun and was very good posture and kind of had a little smirk on her face, a little smile. And I asked her, I was like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Like, so am I doing the right thing? Am I supposed to be questioning them? Like, are they, like, what am I doing here? Is this what, right? I'm on the right track, right? Like, I'm not sure, but I think, and she didn't say a word. She didn't say anything. She just kind of kept smiling. And that's all the dream that I can remember. And it was one of those dreams that happened, I think like right in the middle of the night, when it was like really deep sleep dreams. And I only remembered it the next day while I was pruning a grapevine with one of my mentors there. And we'd been sort of doing this very meditative pruning of the orchard all day. And something that he said just snapped me back into this dream that I'd had the night before. And I said, oh my gosh. I think Mrs. March visited me last night, my dream. Uh, anyway, it's just a story to, <laughs> not sure where that's going. I think that if we're open, you know, I'm open to the possibility that something in that, it was a reassuring dream, was to reassure me that I should be asking these questions. Um, we're on the right track and be open to silence, 
you know, she didn't say a word. Be open to crazy things happening, like somebody who died 20 years ago visiting you in a dream and, and being able to help you. Maybe even if my imagination created that dream, even if she didn't actually visit me, it was helpful in my work to be confident in what I'm doing in my work there. And, yeah. And trust yourself. Yeah, and trust myself. Yeah. What a great place to end. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for your interview. That was a wonderful story. Love that. Simple. Essential. Sophia Maribel. Thank you. Thank you. Clouds seem to follow me. Alcohol that my pot swallow bottle me. No apology. I walk with a bold on my shoulder. It's a cold war. I'm a colder soldier. Hold the same fight that made Martin Luther the king. I ain't using it for the right thing. In between lean and the fiends, hustle and the schemes. I put together pieces of a dream. I still have one. I got a dream. One day. We gonna work it out. One day. We gonna work it out. One day. We
His nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of his creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. find out more about Sophia Maravell's envisioning work, do a Google search for Ecologia Rising. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I-A, like Ecologia, but it's actually pronounced Ecologia Rising, R-I-S-I-N-G. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week.